I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm going to jump right in. Okay. Ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jumping. Jump. So, Nate, I was thinking recently about the versatility of the word extreme. Oh, it's a great word. Yeah. Extreme heat. Extreme sports. Oh, man, that was extreme. Your fingers and toes are literally your extremities. They're pretty extreme. They're pretty amazing. It's the name of a band. They better had some extremely awesome music. What, what was one of their hits? Hold on. Oh, they did more than words. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember them. So the reason I was thinking about this word is because a couple of months ago, we asked listeners for their extreme questions on our social media feeds. And today we are opening up the mailbag to answer them. That's right. I'm Nate Hedgie here with producer Taylor Quimby. Hey. And this is the Outside Inbox Extreme Edition. I think you have to say that like a movie trailer guy. Extreme. That was pretty good. That's good. All right. I got low. So the benefit of a good prompt, Nate, is that uh, it can go in a lot of interesting directions. Um, But our Mm -hmm. first couple of questions today, I think we're probably inspired by the fact that right now we in the Northern Hemisphere are at an extreme angle, planetarily speaking, i.e. it is winter. Uh, so. I don't think anybody describes winter that way. That's a, that's a good one, though. An extreme angle. You never you never look at the sun in winter when it's like really yellow and it's stretching over the... And you think like, what an extreme angle that's coming in at. Oh, yeah. I'm in Alaska right now, and that is the sun is incredibly low, just hovering along the horizon. So maybe I'm giving you too much crap. Maybe that's actually a good way to, to explain winter. Yeah, so first up, a question related to winter uh, that you answered with producer Jessica Hunt. Today's question is from Alyssa via Instagram. Hello, Outside In. How slow can an animal's heartbeat get without it dying? So how many beats per minute are needed to keep an animal alive? And how does this change with hibernation and other behaviors? Thank you. I, I guess she's not talking about like when animals go into 
deep, deep hibernation. Because I always thought their hearts just actually stop, like frogs that are frozen in ice. Nate, you, that's the whole... <laughs> Is that the answer? <laughs> just gave... Let me do a different answer. Let me do a different answer. Sorry, I just watched Planet Earth. <laughs> That is a very good question. So, Jessica, I'm going to let you take it away. So the size of an animal is generally what determines how often its heart beats or its beats per minute, BPM. Small animals lose heat through their skin faster than big animals do. So they need to produce energy and heat at a faster pace and then redistribute it repeatedly through their body as it disperses. So they have a faster breathing and heart rate. The hummingbird at 1,000 beats per minute. Take a listen. That sounds like a flat tire. That's so fast. Yeah, it's just constant. Yeah. So the inverse would mean that for larger animals, there's a slower heartbeat. Mm. The largest mammal, the blue whale, for example, has a heart the size of a sofa, and their heartbeats per minute have been recorded as low as two per minute. And that's the slowest heartbeat of any warm-blooded mammal. Oh, wow. That sounds like someone banging a huge drum. That's cool. Amazing. Both big and small animals sometimes employ a survival strategy that causes the heart rate to drop, and that's called torpor. Torpor. Both the hummingbird and hibernating animals like the black bear experience torpor, which is involuntary. Not only does the heart rate drop, but so does body temperature, the breathing rate, and metabolism. What what brings torpor on? So for black bears, it's the shortage of food and length of day. So it happens in winter. Their heart rate drops from an average of 55 down to about 14 beats per minute. That is really slow. Wow. But hummingbirds experience torpor to conserve energy every night. And they can vary the level from shallow to deep torpor. Hmm. Their heart rates drop from that super rapid 1,000 beats per minute that we heard to as slow as 180 to 50 beats per minute on a cold night. That's about as fast as a human being's heart. Yeah, but like you alluded to earlier, there are animals who can put their heartbeat and respiration on pause all winter without dying. It's called brumation, and it's essentially hibernation for cold-blooded animals. I, I would like to go into brumation during the winter. That would be nice. Just skip winter. Wake up when it's nice and sunny. Exactly. And that's what happens to frogs, specifically the wood frog and spring peepers. They overwinter by burrowing into mud or leaf litter and staying there, apparently dead, no breathing and zero heartbeat. Wow. What they do is they flood their cells with glucose, which is basically a concentrated sugar solution, and it acts like antifreeze in their bodies. And their bodies freeze, not solid frozen, but about 70%. It's like a, it's like a frog-shaped ice cube. But then come spring, they defrost. It can take like an hour, and then they hop on their way. Normal heart rate, 40 to 50 beats per minute. Flash unfrozen, too. Turtles are also able to slow down their heart rates to almost nothing. Normally, a turtle's heart beats about 40 times a minute when they're basking in the sun in the summer. But during the winter, when they're buried in the mud at the bottom of the lake or in the woods, their heartbeat drops to about one beat every 10 minutes. So real slow. Makes sense for a uh, 
turtle. Yes, and then the same with snakes. Did you ever think about snakes in winter? Yeah, I just always assume they just go away. Yeah, like they just disappear. No, they gather like literally a clump of hundreds and thousands of snakes in a den beneath the frost line, and they go dormant, all like bundled up together to conserve energy and protect themselves from the cold. I never, ever want to see that in uh, in real life. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> so that was producer Jessica Hunt and me talking about heartbeats. I really don't think I give my heart enough credit for beating. Oh, I think about that a lot. Like, I don't have a gratitude journal, but I think about starting one all the time. And if I do, I'm going to start with a little gratitude for my heart. Yeah. Hey, heart kept going today. That's great. Good job, heart. Yeah. Okay, uh, so moving on, we have another producer, Felix Poon, this time with a question about darkness or light, depending on how you look at it. So we've got a seasonally appropriate question from Catherine, who just recently moved to Portland, Oregon, and is worried about a dark and rainy winter. So we know that seasonal affective disorder is a thing, but what if humans lived in an environment in the far north or far south where it's dark for months at a time? Do they experience health issues besides seasonal affective disorder? So to answer this question, I really leaned into the far south part of Catherine's question, as in the farthest south you can get. So I called up a researcher named Carmen Posnig. I spent a year in Antarctica, and there I was working for the European Space Agency, looking at how humans adapt to extreme environments. That sounds like a pretty cool job. So Carmen was basically experimenting on the small team of people stationed at the Concordia Research Station, Mm -hmm. where the sun drops below the horizon for four full months. She drew their blood and made them do cognitive and fine motor skill tests. What'd she find? Well, a lack of sunlight really screws up your circadian rhythm, changes your heart rate, your blood pressure. It throws off hormone levels like cortisol and melatonin, Mm -hmm. and that makes it harder to sleep well. So everyone's really tired all the time, and their cognitive and motor skills really declined. Wow. Carmen also says people get depressed or get easily aggravated at the station. And so they do try to break things up by having this midwinter festival on June 21st, which is halfway through the dark period. And uh, everybody is celebrating that from this moment on, in theory, the sun is coming closer again. (laughs) In theory... Still a long ways to the solstice, to the next solstice. Yeah, exactly. Carmen says it's actually more depressing after that because you're only halfway there Uh and there's no big festival to look forward to anymore. Yeah, pretty much feels like winter every year for me (laughs) after the holidays. (laughs) So the big caveat here is that they weren't just dealing with no sunlight. They're also dealing with less oxygen because of the high altitude Mm -hmm. and also the impacts of extreme isolation. So to get some insight on an environment that's closer to our listener, Catherine, in the Pacific Northwest, I spoke to Kira Maseth. Kira is a clinical psychologist at Seattle University, and I asked her about seasonal affective disorder, or SAD. Mm -hmm. She said that less sunlight means less vitamin D, which you need for a good immune system. Less sunlight also means less serotonin, which is one of those happiness hormones we need to feel good. But Kira says that SAD isn't just about sunlight. Things that are associated with sun around exercise and getting out and moving that also have positive physical and mental health effects. A lot of those sad symptoms come with just being more sedentary and not going outside. 
-hmm. Plus, there's the holidays, which stress a lot of people out, too. So, Felix, what's someone like Catherine to do? I mean, like, I've heard of sun lamps. Yeah, Kira did mention sun lamps, and she says to get one with a UVB bulb because UVB light is what your body needs to make vitamin D. Mm -hmm. But she says you might want to consult your doctor about any family risk factors related to skin cancer. That's a good point. But if your symptoms aren't really about sunlight and maybe have more to do with exercise or getting outside, then Kira says you should focus on other changes like being active, increasing your connection with people, not isolating yourself. And so in the Pacific Northwest, that means getting the right gear to go outside even when it's raining. Felix, this reminds me of one of our recent Outside In episodes where we shared 13 tips on how to sort of thrive this winter. Yeah. So I asked Kira and Carmen to share with me how they lean into the darkness and become friends with winter. Our family is a big snow family. We ski. We're out in the, in the woods um, in snow uh, all the time. During the wintertime, you have this wonderful um, night sky and you can go out at around noon and you have the Milky Way and galaxies and nebulas and auroras. And it's actually really, really beautiful and a, quite a good substitute, I think, for sunlight. <laughs> a lot of tiny suns. <laughs> oh, yeah. Auroras would definitely be a great substitute for sunlight, I think. Totally. That was producer Felix Poon. And hey, Taylor, have you ever used a sad lamp? Like one of those, you know fake sunshine lamps i did actually i bought one some years ago the thing that you have to be careful with sad lamps is that yeah in order to get the effect that is actually uh backed up by science you have to be like super close to the lamp yeah you're sitting right next to it and it's very bright christine just got me one for for christmas and when we turned it on we were both just like <laughs> i'm told that like it's best as a ritual that you start literally in the morning and you can just keep your eyes closed and you can just do your 30-minute lamp soak. I'll try that. I'll put it next to the bedside table and either curse you when I wake up at 5 in the morning and blast myself with, with white light or I'll be like, oh, I feel pretty good. We got to take a break, but before we do, just a quick reminder that this show is listener-powered. You are the solar panels that keep the podcast lights on. And if you can spare five bucks a month to keep Outside In sounding as charged up as possible, please head on over to OutsideInRadio.org and donate now. It works better than you are the turbines that spin this podcast round and round. You are the coal-powered plant. You are the geothermal vents. You're, you're the anaerobic digester that keeps the <laughs> podcast lights on. Welcome back. I'm Nate Hedgie here with Taylor Quimby for another edition of The Outside Inbox. And since we are opening mail, I was hoping that we could read some of the comments that came in after we tried a new segment recently called This, That, or The Other Thing. Yes, we asked folks, what is your biggest roadblock to eating more sustainably? Jonas wrote in to say that his biggest hurdle is just money. Understandable. Nicola from Montreal, Canada says mental health plays a factor. He's got low motivation and creativity in the kitchen. And Caleb uh, wrote in from Minnesota to say that his biggest roadblock 
um, is dietary restrictions. He has celiac disease, which means any gluten whatsoever is super dangerous for him. Mm -hmm. He's also got issues with chicken and sugar. Um, and so he wrote, quote, as a result, I've decided that eating sustainably is not something that is going to be my cause. Adding more thought and restriction to my already restricted time consuming diet. I just can't. Well, uh, I hope that our segment um, left folks feeling like there are things that they can do to make a difference. Like climate action isn't a zero sum game or a popularity contest. Yep. I really appreciate that Caleb went on to say he focuses on sustainability in other ways, taking public transit, mending his own clothes um, and stuff like that. That's a great skill, being able to mend your own clothes. I need to up my sewing game. I have repaired a hole before. Yes, I've done that once. The uh the awkward crotch hole in a, je- a pair of jeans that wears up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got it. You got to do something about those. You can't just like slap gotta, some duct tape to. over it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, let us know what other iconic sustainability debate you think we should tackle on the next this that or the other thing. Now, getting back to extremes. Extreme. This next question is all about a disaster that is both commonplace and sometimes very very extreme. Hi, Taylor. This is Phil from Portland, Maine. My wife and I recently went on a hike and we're noticing a landslide probably happened within recent years. Any experience with uh, landslides or mudslides, Nate? I've been watching the uh, the recent coverage on California of all those mudslides. Like I literally was just watching that on Twitter and they look terrifying. Yeah. How often does it still occur? Why does it happen? Are there any notable events? Will climate change make them happen more often? Thank you. It's a lot of questions. Yeah, it's like five questions. It's a lot. <laughs> so the first thing I learned is that a landslide is a very broad category of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, say you have a rocky mountain path, right, Nate? And there's maybe some loose gravel that's kind of slowly tumbling down that path, maybe 10 feet a year. Yeah. That is technically a landslide. Hmm. It's a pretty small landslide. It is. So, you know, you can see how they really run the gamut. You know, they can be wet, they can be dry, they can go so slow you can't see it, or they could be going as fast as a city bus. Wow. And according to research geologist Karina Sarovsky-Dario, landslides are probably way more common than you and I might have realized. They happen often. They happen in all 50 states. Annually, they cause billions of dollars in damage and kill on order of 25 to 50 people, unfortunately, each year in the U.S. alone. Okay, so the the next part of Phil's question was, why do they occur? Right. Uh, Well, Karina is part of the U.S. Geological Survey's Landslide Disaster Assistance Team, and she told me that one big reason, no surprises here, is just gravity, right? Mm -hmm. Like, take a slope between 25 and 40 degrees, put some vaguely round objects on it, rocks, and you are liable to see some slidage. But another way to think about landslides is that they are often what we might think of as a secondary disaster mm-hmm. triggered by some other type of event. Right. Like a, like a huge rainfall or, I don't know, like maybe an earthquake? Exactly. The so landslides are typically triggered by water, be that rainfall or changes in river or lake levels, earthquakes, volcanoes, and then humans. Wait, how do humans... Uh, start a landslide besides like hiking on a trail well the main sources of human cost slides would be things like construction road cutting mining things like that okay our listener phil asked about notable landslides well the deadliest landslide in recent u.s history was called the oso mudslide technically this is what is referred to as a debris flow these are the mudslides that we hear in the news and it killed 43 people in washington state in 2014 i remember that one i remember that one yeah it was massive 
there had been a month and a half of abnormally heavy rains and basically an entire hillside caved in and just created this huge river of mud. It essentially would have covered, I believe it was 700 football fields, 10 feet deep. That one, that one made international headlines, like everywhere, I think. It did. Grim morning at the site of a giant mudslide north of Seattle. The local fire chief says searchers... Are but one you might not have really heard about in this way happened in 2017 when there was a huge series of landslides um, after Hurricane Maria. Hmm. Hurricane Maria triggered over 70,000 landslides in Puerto Rico. 70,000. That's a lot. Yeah. And another type of secondary disaster we hear about are mudslides that take place after wildfires, um, you know, which can strip slopes of vegetation that hold water in. And those areas can become much more prone to landslides, which I think gets us to Phil's last question about landslides and climate change. Oh, it definitely does. I mean, like, you know, severe wildfires have been exacerbated by, by by climate change and poor forest management. Right. So it's likely that certain places are going to see more landslides because of extreme weather that has been exacerbated by climate change. That being said. On the flip side of that, uh, these prolonged droughts might actually decrease the risk from deep-seated landslides, these really big, large landslides that don't respond to a single intense rainstorm. It's like a whole season of rainy weather. But regardless of climate impacts, a global database of landslide events shows one of the biggest rises is coming from those human-caused activities we talked about, mining, construction, etc., which is really terrifying. Yeah. You, you know, we couldn't have a show that's all about extremes without talking about extreme weather, which I guess is like, of course, so it's so commonplace now that it feels weird to call it extreme. But of course, it's still extreme. Yep. It's just the new. I'm not going to say that. It's not the new normal. Uh, we have the power to be able to curb the worst of the climate crisis. Yeah. I said that so convincingly. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right. All right. So, again, staying on the extreme weather beat for this last question, yes. which you talked about with Justine Paradise. This is Maris from Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. I was wondering if you could explain wet bulb temperatures and events. You know when it's summer in, say, Arizona, and people say, oh, you know, it's hot, but it's not too bad because it's a dry heat. Right. Yeah. That's because in dry heat sweating actually makes you feel a lot better yeah yeah like sweating is the way we cool our bodies we sweat the water evaporates off our skin temperature drops but if the air is super hot and humid so saturated with water and your sweat can't evaporate sweating doesn't work as well humid heat stress is really really dangerous because we have a limited capacity to evaporate sweat off of our bodies that's daniel Vasilio. he's a biometeorologist who studies climate change and human health so a wet bulb temperature helps illustrate the dangers of extreme heat by looking at temperature and humidity together, sort of like how wind chill combines wind and temperature to better illustrate the dangers of extreme cold. So when does humid heat get dangerous? Well, there's different numbers out there. In 2010, researchers came up with one theory for the upper limit of what the human body can take. 95 degrees at 100% humidity. But... That had never actually been empirically tested. So that's what Daniel and his co-authors did. They studied people doing physical activity under various conditions to test heat stress in practice. And they found that people started experiencing heat stress at much lower levels, so at about 50% humidity and 88 degrees Fahrenheit. 
that honestly doesn't doesn't seem that high 88 degrees yeah it's a way lower bar than the theoretical limit the real answer is probably somewhere in between those two numbers and that's partly because the critical environmental limit is going to vary depending on the individual age health history what your body's used to Mm -hmm. and we should point out that when people die during heat waves it is not always caused by overheating directly heat stresses out a lot of your systems and it can trigger a pre-existing condition for example Let's go on to our second question. Sam in Concord asked if people already experience wet bulb limits in some parts of the world and how people adapt culturally. So, Justine, where do we see these extreme humid heat conditions? Well, that depends on what we're talking about. The higher limit... As of 2010, had not been really seen across the entire world. But 88 degrees, relatively humid, that is more common. And yes, some parts of the world do see heat waves more often and will be more likely to see future wet bulb limit type heat. And that's places like the Middle East, Pakistan, and India. As Indians, we have been living with high heat conditions throughout, and it was already a difficult thing to do. Now this additional heat is actually pushing us to the brink. This is Avakal Samvanshi. He's a data scientist and urbanologist in New Delhi. Avakal told me that we have to stop thinking about heat waves as episodic events and rethink how we live, especially in cities. In India, working age men are dying. These are the men who are actually blue collar workers and are forced to work during the peak heat hours during the day. One tool that people use is passive design. So that could mean the way we design not just buildings, but also city streets. If you look at the old cities of India, the roads were narrow and they were winding because they didn't want the sun to hit the roads where people were walking. But that has kind of disappeared in the modern design. To tackle climate-driven heat, we'll also need more tools beyond urban design. We'll need to rethink how we structure our lives. So think about siestas cultures that take breaks from work and school during the hottest part of the day. Air conditioning is another way we adapt, but since air conditioners generate lots of waste heat and often are running on fossil fuel-generated energy, they're not an ideal solution. These systems changes, we need to start considering them now because, as Daniel Facilio said, climate-driven heat impacts are not a future problem. They're already here. Heat is already the number one killer, weather-related killer, of people in the United States before the United States are even thinking about reaching the thresholds that we found. Okay, well, did you learn anything about extremes, Nate, during this show? They're becoming more and more commonplace, unfortunately. I don't know if this is something that I've learned listening to this show, but it is something that I think about, which is that human beings are capable of extreme adaptability yeah absolutely i mean just like i was i was in fairbanks alaska and i was thinking about that as i watched everybody just walking around in light jackets in negative 10 degree weather and you're just like how can you do this they just adapted and by the end of the trip i kind of adapted i was able to walk around with a lighter jacket than usual (laughs) in cold weather so it's, it's pretty cool i'm resisting the parental urge to say that's ridiculous. Um, and <laughs> I've lost two fingers from frostbite, but I looked cool, so it's worth it. This episode was produced, reported, and mixed by Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, and Felix Poon. Editing by Taylor 
with help from Justine Paradise. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music for this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.